This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Denny Rancourt. Caught with the... Is it a silent T? I, I forget. It doesn't really matter. Anglophones say Rancourt, but the, the proper pronunciation is Rancourt. Oh, so, well, I want to say your name and correctly. I'm, I'm good with both. Oh, I got the huh? first part right. You did. <laughs> That's the only part I usually insist on is the first name. Well, you're, you're, you're Canadian French, so I must get it right. So it's is Denis... Denis Rancourt. That's about the best I'm going oh, to get that's it. that's very close. That's very close, yes. <laughs> Thank you for joining me in the trenches. And I say the trenches because it feels like we're in a war. It is a war. I think it's a war against people. And there's also in the background of it uh, a very large geoeconomic war that's going on. So it is a war. And I, and I don't think that the war against people in Western countries is is disconnected from the actual geoeconomic war that is being waged these huge blocks that are opposing each other's and uh decoupling from each other and really creating tension you know between themselves now creating this distance and i'm obviously talking about asia china asia the chinese sphere of influence versus uh the u.s kind of usually was the global hegemony and now is uh, losing its place to some degree. And there's a lot of tension related to that. And I think that that is the overriding frame that that uh, kind of explains a lot of what's going on. Un- unpack that just a little bit. I'm quite curious because I think I agree. Hmm. Well, you know, I the, these are huge changes that are occurring geopolitically now. Uh, the the uh, Chinese system, which is a the largest economy, was was fully integrated into the U.S. dollar system, if you like, uh, uh, and the plan was to take over China through that uh, monetary influence and through creating a wealthy class in China, and that is that adopts the same uh, philosophy and alignment with the U.S. that controls most wealthy wealthy people in the world that controlled the various territories that they exploit. Okay. So that was the plan. It failed. And the reason it failed is that the communist party is very well organized, very well structured and did, uh, kept control of the essential elements to preserve uh, national identity and sovereignty. And so as a result, it failed. Um, it often succeeds in many countries it does, but it did not. And they realized that the, the course was going to be that uh, this economic development of China is accelerating and is very uh, powerful in the world because when China negotiates economic agreements with, for example, African countries or Asian countries, they tend to be much more fair agreements, if you like. There's a balance. There's, you know, it's, it's beneficial to both parties and that it's, it's not based on a just an outright exploitation, which is the usual American system that's been applied in Latin America, for example, uh, and in Africa. So as a result, the Chinese are much more competitive uh, uh, w- with their with their uh, dealings with other countries. They're, they don't backstab other countries. They don't abandon their, their mm. allies. 
and they have a, a long uh, history of being very consistent. And I think as a result, it's a system that's easier to uh, collaborate with than the U.S. Uh, kind of bully that just does whatever and is always, you know, through the CIA overturning governments and all kinds mm. of things that are just, just not very palatable to people who want stability and growth. So I think that the, the, they could see that the uh, Chinese system was uh, really going at a high pace, de developing and, and gaining influence. And they decided uh, to uh, put a stop to it to the, to the best of their ability, uh, given their limited present ability. And one way is to therefore de decouple um, the economies and to try to hurt China by removing its markets uh, yeah. for selling its products. Uh, and and uh, th so that's the plan. So they, they, they moved all of the U.S.-based capital, capital U.S. capital-based industry out of China and into Asian and other countries that are, that are part of, that are satellites of the U.S., basically. And they, so it's a huge restructuring. All the, all the transport lines are re reconfigured. Everything's reconfigured. And the, there's going to be, a, a, there already is, and there's going to be a very large global economic impact that will make, uh, especially the, the, the professional and middle classes in the Western world are going to feel it in a big way. And so they're preparing for that. They're preparing for the population backlash that will come from people suffering the consequences of this. And I think that that's a big part of wanting to control the population. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the U.S. has two enemies, uh, the one en that, that it sees as enemies, okay, that it, it, it takes to be enemies. One is uh, emerging economies in the world that could potentially be uh, competitors. And the other is its own domestic population, because its domestic population is used to freedom and used to democracy. And there are institutions in place to protect those democratic rights. And that is a threat. That's the threat of democracy. And the, the CIA, the deep state, they see that as, as a very real threat. And they do not want democracy because they want they have plans for the, the next things they're going to do in the world. And they don't want those plans to be frustrated by people saying, wait a minute, why can't we get along? Wouldn't it be better for all of us? Wouldn't, you know, and so on. So it's a, it's a class war to a large extent. It's not an accident that there are things like the the yellow vests in France had, you know, had arisen. All of these movements, even even the Trump election, I would say, is a reflection of the working and middle classes wanting more of a say in this in this geopolitical uh, election. Project. Yeah, sure, but there is a remnant of the of democracy in in our countries. Uh, you know, there there are these still these institutions and laws and so on. And it, they're being eroded very, very quickly. But, you know, Trump was elected, let's face it, uh, the first time. Yes. And uh, despite what you might have thought from the outside, when you look at the project that he announces, I would have said, are they going to allow this? Yet he was elected. No, I was referring to last year. I beg your pardon. Oh, I know. I know. I know. I know, and I was I was countering that with the with the previous election, <laughs> but so just, just just to illustrate that, um, yeah, there's still there's still structures of democracy left, mm. and um, so anyway, I, I think in a nutshell, that's what I think is going on in the world. And the, well, the, 
Yeah, the medical system is the perfect way to control people. You can and speaking of that, movement. yeah, and speaking yeah. of that, a year ago, can you believe it? A year ago when you and I spoke uh, last, uh, you were talking about how ineffective masks are. It seems, it seems like an utterly redundant conversation if you look at what's going on now. Well, how do you mean redundant? I mean, they're they're still pushing the masks. They're still uh, putting. Um, out, uh, big, I beg your pardon. Not redundant. I know. I mean, I mean, insignificant. Sorry. Yes. Yes. Well, the masks were um, the first step towards training us to be obedient and to be submissive, and they were a first step. They were getting us ready for the vaccines, and the vaccine is the ultimate thing. Actually, injecting something that some pharma has concocted that you know government inspectors are never in the labs they don't see what's going on there's no way to to check it the pharma is the one reporting the studies studies in quotations um that 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 purport to say that uh, these vaccines are effective that they're safe and so on so there's there's no actual government control for something that's going to be injected into the bodies of everyone uh, which is obscene when you think about it, that they can just concoct these things. Uh, they do the studies. They report what they want to, even though they're legally bound to report. Uh, um, they don't. We know that now from whistleblowers and so on. Um, so it's a pretty sad state of affairs. Uh, and that, if you're going to allow them to inject you under those circumstances, uh, that's complete submission. You've given up. You know, you're, you're, you're allowing them to inject something into your body. And that's what they want. They want you to commit to it. They want you to buy into it. They want you to be able to say that you did your part, that you, you were obedient and so on. Just before we talk about um, your paper on which this conversation is based, you're in Canada and I have a few friends in Canada and they're having a very tough time not um, – what's the word? I'm uh, they're having a tough time – disobeying i mean they they're being their jobs being put on the line oh yeah oh yeah the the canadian system is extremely aggressive uh regarding the vaccine and they are basically putting you on unpaid leave that's that's when they're they're not outright firing people they're putting them on un, unpaid leave it's it's horrendous uh, and there's a machine that does this. They've, 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 they've set up a legal protocol for doing this. All the big firms, all the, all the government-connected firms. I mean, uh, you know, the government gives out a lot of contracts, and it has required anyone who has a government contract, they have to have a vaccine policy, which means they have to have the government's vaccine policy. Uh, and, and, uh, they're, and, and they're enforcing it. And so all the universities, all the all the just anything you can think of and of course the private corporations themselves are going along with it because they don't they they don't want to make enemies with the most powerful players in society right so um so yes people are being put out of work absolutely who 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 want the the people who want to keep their uh, bodily integrity and who have these principles where they they don't think it's right therefore they will not partake they're being let go absolutely i've close friends who have been let go is it yeah. a vaccine though <laughs> it's an injection okay what what is you know what there in in my mind i have reviewed the 
most many of the uh, published trials, you know, that the scientific articles that are peer reviewed and that purport to say that there is a benefit from these vaccines and that they're safe. I cannot say that there's a benefit. These studies are shabby. The statistics uh, are such that you cannot definitively say that there's an advantage. I mean, I could go on about the, the fatal flaws in these studies. Are, I mean, it's just glaring. And they admit that, they're, that the studies themselves are written, that the articles are written by pharma. There's a paper, the, the, the main paper by Pfizer, it actually says in the paper that the people responsible for the content of this paper is Pfizer. It explicitly says so, you know. And um, so this is the so-called science that they're relying on to try to convince us that there's a benefit to being vaccinated. I do not see a benefit. Yeah, and But there's proven harm from it. That's clear. That's clear. You cannot deny the, the harm uh, that comes from being vaccinated, the risk. There's a very real risk. Um, for many serious conditions. So that's the situation. The 170-page paper which you co-authored, uh, before we talk about that, what is the big picture? The big picture, how do you mean? The You mean in oh, the paper? or Yeah, the abstract. The abstract, the big paper. Okay, that yeah, I, you're, you're, you're right. To, uh, sometimes I, uh, when I'm speaking and I'm involved in the conversation, I forget to say that it was co-authored with uh, two very appreciated co-authors uh, that I've been doing research with for well, more than a year now. And uh, that, that's Marine Baudin and Jeremy Mercier. They're both PhDs. Uh, Marine is specialized in microbiology. And uh, and and uh, Jeremy works in the health field. He has a company in that area. So we have been uh, uh, able to do much more than I, I was able to do when I was alone. And so that's a great collaboration. I'm happy to have them. Now, this paper, this last one that we did together is about the United States. And the beautiful thing about the United States is you've got 50 states to work with that are like independent countries that are like separate countries, they, different climates, different geographies, different populations, different uh, legal systems, almost, you know, different, different precedents, different governors. It's like working with 50 countries. So you can look at all the states individually, and you can start to look for correlations. You can try to correlate what things are like, what life is like, what the institutions are like in a given state with how much mortality they suffer as a result of excess mortality, as a result of the uh, COVID period, okay? So what's the paper about? The paper is uh, exploiting that uh, study ground, which is the United States, to try to figure out what's going on with this so-called uh, COVID. And we use the most powerful tool that you can use scientifically for this kind of study. We use all-cause mortality. All-cause mortality as a function of time. In other words, the total number of deaths per unit time in a given jurisdiction, that's the most robust data you can have. And it's, it's data that you can use to see what's really happening at the population level. Are, are there really more people dying? And you're not affected by bias when you do this because a death is a death is a death. I've said this many times in interviews, you know, that we're not trying to assign cause of death. We're just looking at the total deaths, which are always counted and we know the age of the person when they died, and we know where they died, and we know the data which they died, okay? That's hard data. You can take that data, and you can know a lot of things for sure about this, about this period, the COVID period. 
Yeah. So that's the method. And what we found, wow, we found a lot of things. It's a, it's a large study, but I think we have identified some things that no one else has seen. You, you have to understand there's only about a handful of scientific groups that are looking at all-cause mortality in a serious way. I, and I'm talking about established scientists who use scientific methods. There are only about a handful of people who have actually looked at this. And I think that we have done the most in-depth work of all of all of the groups that are doing this now. Um, my first paper was uh, right in June 2020. Right away, I said, as soon as I saw the all-cause mortality data for many European countries in the United States, I said, whoa, stop. There's a huge peak in all-cause mortality that surges up as immediately after the World Health Organization announced the pandemic, okay? It just surges right up immediately, and it's synchronous around the world. Wherever it occurs, it occurs at the same time. It's not spreading. It's a result of the measures that were put in place at the same time because the World Health Organization recommended that you lock down, that you prepare your hospitals and all these things. And the jurisdictions that did that and did it aggressively had a huge catastrophic amount of deaths. And it's a very sharp peak in time in all-cause mortality that then drops after a couple of months or so. And so New York is, is the prime example of that. New York City just, just went through the roof. Um, and so the first thing I said was, you know, a virus cannot act this way. A virus does not act in hot spots and nowhere else. A virus did not simultaneously act in those hot spots at the same time in synchronicity around the world, in Europe and so on, in these extreme hotspots. Um, so I said, it, this is inconsistent with, with a, a viral pandemic and it has to be due to the measures that were applied because it's jurisdictional dependent, okay? It's, it's dependent on where you are and what you did where you are. That I said that right away. And then we kept following the all-cause mortality as time advanced from that point on. We've, we're now, we've now had like 20 months or more of it. And the data in the United States is just stunning what, what happened after that. So you can tell a whole story just by looking at that data and comparing state to state and so on. And that's what that's where we discovered what we discovered in the paper, which I still haven't told you about. <laughs> yes, I. But, yeah, but before, but before you, there. but before you tell me, I need to just quickly ask you a question, uh, which yeah. is directly related to your comment. You said that this um, the the data doesn't appear to show how a viral spread behaves. How does a virus behave? Well, that's a really good question. Okay, uh, it, it's a deeper question. I mean, okay, look, I guess there's two answers. One is how epidemiologists would say that it spreads, what you learn in school. And the other is, what can you tell from actually looking at hard data, the all-cause mortality? Um, the all-cause mortality <clears throat> in mid-latitude northern hemisphere countries has always has a larger hump in the winter and then it comes down to a summer trough and that pattern has been regular ever since we've been measuring it wherever there's good data in mid-latitude northern hemisphere countries our winter high mortality summer low mortality and it's been doing that for as i said hundreds thousands of years as long as we've been measuring it uh and we've been measuring it for over 100 years is very clear, it's very clean. Um, in the Southern Hemisphere, that maximum occurs 
in our summer, that is your winter. So it's inverted. And so whatever the phenomenon is, it's related to the winter season. And you, and you don't see it in near the equator, where there are not these big differences in, in seasons, you don't see a seasonal variation. Um, so that is that phenomenon is not, it's an understatement to say it's not completely understood. Okay, but for the longest time, it was believed to be directly caused by viral respiratory diseases, that that was the main driver of this thing. And that makes sense because transmission of viral respiratory diseases is through aerosol particles. And aerosol particles are stable in air when the air is dry, when the absolute humidity is low. And that's the winter. And they don't, they almost don't transmit. You, you don't get a lot of transmission and epidemics in large places in the summer. Okay, because the aerosol particles are simply not stable. They're, they don't they don't stay in suspension in the air. And on and on, I could tell the whole story about trying to understand why and what we think might be causing this. But when you actually look at it in detail, to the extent that you can attribute the cause of mortality as being due to a respiratory problem, it only explains part of that winter winter peak. Okay, so there's a large part of the winter peak that's not completely explained. And either that's because we're not diagnosing it right, you know, attributing the cause of death completely right, and or there are lots of other causes that are also seasonal. We know, for example, that uh, heart problems and heart attacks are very seasonal. So uh, people people are more likely to, to die of a heart problem in the winter than in the summer, and so on. Uh, now, is that because they're also infected with a virus that gives extra stress, you know, or... And so the whole... Um, area of trying to understand this winter mortality is uh, still debated, and there's many theories about why it, it happens. Everything from vitamin D uh, being depressed in the winter because there's less light, you know, you name it. There's a whole slew of potential explanations. The dominant explanation has been related to viral respiratory diseases and the associated bacterial pneumonias that, that you get at the same time, or in, in pneumonias, I think I should be saying. Mm. Uh, I, I, in French, it's pneumonie, so I get that. That'll happen a lot. Um, so, okay. So um, now, when you look at this pattern of all-cause mortality, it's synchronous around the world. You and so, and so that up. doesn't, yeah. So that doesn't appear to be within the bounds of the behavior that you that you're used to seeing. Well, it's not consistent with the mm. idea that there's a nucleus where an epidemic starts and then it spreads. Right. Because it that the all-cause mortality rises up uh, at the same time uh, in a given year, in a given season, uh, in in the UK and in New York. Okay. But and not in Sweden. Yeah, exactly. And uh, everywhere. And so, and not only that, but in a given winter, the all-cause mortality as a function of time by week or by day, for example, has a structure. And get this, that structure is preserved from one jurisdiction to another. Okay, so it's not only synchronous, but it's the same kind of fingerprint pattern, irrespective of where you are, which is like, try to get, you know, wrap your head around that. Why is this happening? Now, it's not that exactly the same. There are some variations in the pattern, but still, if there's a sharper peak at the beginning and then a broader potato on the side, no, you pretty much get that everywhere. Okay. So how can we understand this phenomenon? Some people have said that the virus spreads 
the viruses spread much more quickly than we imagine because they, they, they go into the upper atmosphere and they come down and they're always there. And then when you become susceptible to these diseases because of your conditions in the wintertime, that's when you catch them, you know, uh, because they stay around longer in the air and the dry air as they're coming down. You know, that's, there are all kinds of theories have been proposed. But to answer your question, if you, the, the approach we've had is to say, we look at this all-cause mortality and we'll accept for the sake of argument that the main driver is viral respiratory diseases, okay? Therefore, what these patterns have looked like historically is the usual viral respiratory disease behavior, if you accept this, okay? And if you accept that, then you have to admit that in the COVID period, the time structure of the all-cause mortality from country to country, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, now has a completely different behavior than ever before. Okay? So now there are peaks in one place that are completely absent in another place. So there's heterogeneity from jurisdiction to jurisdiction like you never see. It's never happened before. The only time you get heterogeneity in all-cause mortality that we've, you know, that we've studied is, for example, if you have a very localized heat wave, I mean, a real killer of a heat wave, you can have 10,000 deaths in a few counties in France, for example, that happened in 2003, okay? Uh, there was a heat wave that occurred in uh, Washington and Oregon State on the, on the West Coast in the United States recently that caused hundreds of extra deaths in a very sharp time localized peak, okay? That's the only uh, known mechanism of heterogeneity in the all-cause mortality that we know. Yet here we are in the COVID period now, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. So you can have a huge, well, the first example was that very first COVID peak right after the, the pandemic was announced. As I said, that peak did not occur. There's no sign of it statistically in 30 of the U.S. states. 30 of the U.S. states didn't have any anomaly there in the all-cause mortality. That's unheard of for uh, a feature in all-cause mortality that is that is that is usually attributed to viral respiratory diseases. You see, um, then um, what followed was the summer, and the U.S. is the most shocking jurisdiction is that there was a peak in the summer, a huge, broad peak in the summer in the U.S. That's never happened before in all-cause mortality. That's never happened before in, 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 these, in, in, in the data, in the historic data. Never, never. So that's a shocker right there. So what we wanted to do was understand what the heck is going on. How can there be a peak in the summer? There's usually a trough and you come down to the average level, which is always very regular summer to summer. You know, it's always about the same for decades. Um, um, and here you are way above that. Not only are you above it, you've got a peak in the summer. What the heck? So that was one of the first features that we wanted to analyze. And so we integrated the area of that peak over the historic trend values. And then we looked at the area of that mortality peak as a function of every, every socioeconomic parameter we could think of that, that might have a big impact and that we could get good data for all the 50 states. And we looked for correlations and we found correlations. We found that this large number of deaths in the summer in the United States was strongly correlated to 
Are you going to guess? <laughs> yes. Well, I've read, I've read the paper. <laughs> okay, then don't guess. <laughs> okay, it was strongly correlated to three factors. Poverty. Okay, median income. Um, obesity, which is itself is strongly correlated to diabetes and so on. So there's high levels of obesity and the degree of obesity is very different from state to state, highly correlated to the death in the summer. And the third uh, parameter that it correlated to that we found is climatic temperature. In mm. other words, the hotter climate states in the South, okay? Now, we, of course, poverty, obesity, and hot climate are, are correlated to themselves, okay? That, that Because that's where people live in the hotter climates, right. where most of the poor and so on, but not completely, but highly correlated to themselves. But when we take the correlation of the product parameters, so if you say, how is it correlated to poverty times obesity, okay, a new parameter, times climatic uh, temperature, let's say, if you take the product of those three, the correlation is way better than the product of any two or, or any one individually. So we know that it, it's, it's go to, it goes together. They're, co, they're cofactors, if you like, that determine whether or not you're going to have a high chance of dying. Uh, as you know, whether or not your your own death is going to contribute to this excess mortality that we've never seen before. Okay, so very correlated to those factors. And then we said, well, why is that? How can we understand this? You have to understand that it's not simple. Most people would say, well, of course, it's going to be correlated to your general level of health and whether or not you're obese. No, no, they're missing the point if they say that, because here's the thing. When you look at the winter burden of deaths, that is the excess deaths in the winter compared to the summer values, those excess deaths from summer to summer, a given year, let's say, in a, in a given winter, if you look at the 50 states, how intense that is from state to state does not correlate to poverty or obesity or hot climate whatsoever. And you can do year after year for a decade or more, and you cannot find a year where it correlates to those things. So the normal all-cause mortality deaths, the fact that people are more fragile in the summer and die more in the, uh, sorry, in the winter. Another thing that die more in the winter is the integrated that excess, if you look at what the mortality CDC of the winter, how they attribute does not deaths correlate so to poverty, cause attributed uh, deaths uh, obesity in the CDC data bank, you can find the, all the COVID deaths that they attribute to COVID. And you look at the time variation of the COVID deaths, and they also have a big, big peak. And in fact, the, 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 the COVID deaths as a function of time follows the all-cause mortality shape as a function of time, okay? And is almost equal, but the difference, if you take the difference of the two, you recover the seasonal variation the same as you would expect it. Okay, so that's another piece of the puzzle. All right, now, here's the thing. Those COVID deaths, more than half of them are almost from about half, well, from state to state, 40 to 70% of them, they also had bacterial pneumonia associated with the COVID, according to the CDC database. So in other words, bacterial pneumonia was a huge contributing factor to deaths in all of this. All right. 
And its shape, how many of those there are, follows the all-cause mortality also, just like COVID does. They're, they're, they're closely associated. Now, when you get a viral respiratory disease, it doesn't usually kill you. But if you get pneumonia and you're fragile and you're not treated with antibiotics, chances are you're going to die. Well, at the same time that this was happening, happening, a huge epidemic of pneumonia in these states, they stopped prescribing antibiotics. There were scientific articles written saying it's unethical, medically unethical to prescribe antibiotics when we know that we have COVID, a virus, and our what? studies indicate, yes, yes, and we report those articles in our study. We, we cite those articles, and if you look at the number of prescriptions of antibiotics in the United States, it drops in the COVID period. So here you have an epidemic of pneumonia that is 10 times more than you normally have, and you drop the prescriptions of antibiotics by half, by half. And then you wonder, how did people die? Okay, That's unbelievable. Now, yes. Yes, that's one of the main conclusions of our paper. So here's the thing. Poor, obese people always are susceptible to pneumonia. If you do a map of the United States and you look at how many uh, antibiotic prescriptions there are, it's like a map of excess mortality that we found. It's like a map of poverty. It's like a map of obesity, okay? It's those, po those same populations are the one you're prescribing antibiotics to normally, every year, huge maximums of prescriptions there, okay? That tells you, and, and if you look at a map of life expectancy, it's an overlay of the map of antibiotic prescriptions and of poverty and of obesity. So life expectancy is reduced in those populations because of bacterial infections of the lungs. That's what the antibiotics are for, okay? So, so pneumonia is the main life-limiting in terms of life, life expectancy disease among these populations. They're very susceptible to getting pneumonia, and whether or not you're going to get pneumonia is going to be very dependent on, and this is known scientifically, and that's another big part of our paper as we explain this in detail. I'm putting all the pieces together here for you. So... Did you know that medical science has completely established without a doubt that the biggest single cause or determining factor of individual health is psychological stress that you experience in your life? And that psychological stress is uh, a consequence of the dominance hierarchy that social societies inhabit. Okay, that, that 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 individuals in a social society inhabit. Hold on, are you are you so, saying yeah. that are you saying that you can make yourself sick by thinking? Uh, no, 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 not no, I'm not saying that. It's not about um, your control over the stress in your mind. It's about the actual stress that you experience as a result of your environment. Okay, okay. following. So you 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 have to fold in. You have to convolute in that you're experiencing that stress and different. People have different ways of coping with stress and, and they'll experience it differently, but you can't just think it away, okay? It's a consequence of the constant oppression as an underclass in the dominance hierarchy, you know, your nasty boss, 
your the employers that work there that are in a higher uh, uh, social status and work status than you. All these, all this, all this oppression causes stress, and that is a chronic stress, and that is what reduces your life expectancy via how it weakens your immune system and makes you susceptible to various diseases. Right. So people who are stressed in this way are going to be sick more often. They're going to spend more of their time being sick, and they're going to be more sick when they are sick than other people who are not feeling as much. It's an infinite loop. Yeah, in a sense. But it's all tied together in this way, and it is the biggest known factor from animal studies, from Mm. studies of humans, psychological stress experienced by the individual okay so it's not as simple as stress is bad uh, because um, stress that you resolve temporary stress is actually good for you it's been shown to give a boost to your immune system and it invigorates you and you resolve it and you move on okay so temporary stress is great for you but chronic stress that's always there that's this burden that's that's pushing you down always that's a killer that is the killer Okay, so what happened to these fragile populations who are uh, uh, obese, poor and living in the hot states? All of their usual coping mechanisms were removed. They could not go into public air conditioned spaces. They could not sit in the shade and chat with their friends because they would be they would be transmitting the virus. They lost all the alternative economic means that they had, you know, small part time jobs, all this kind of work that that's not necessarily above board and so on. All of the methods that these that this community that these communities have were one day to the next disappeared. They were isolated and they were stressed by that isolation and they were being oppressed by the constant telling them that they're spreading this disease, that they're going to die from it and so on. Okay, now, do you know what the second most important health factor is? Social isolation. Again, hard science shows this. Okay, Uh, there's a professor, uh, Sheldon Cohen, in the United States who studied this for decades. And he found that the two biggest factors, just just with viral respiratory diseases, the two biggest factors, number one, is psychological stress that you experience. Number two, the degree of social connectivity that you have, whether or not you're socially isolated. Nothing else comes close. These are the two dominant factors about whether or not you're going to catch influenza, for example, and how sick you're going to be from it. If those are the if those are the measured quantities, the two factors that affect this most that were found in science, dozens of studies, high quality work, those are the two. Okay, so it's not about the genetic code of a particular virus. Susceptibility to the disease is the dominant playing factor here, and that relates to psychological stress and social connectivity. That's the science, if you're going to follow the science, okay? And you don't have to do a sophisticated randomized control trial to find these things out because the effect is so large. Mm -hmm. So Sheldon Cohen was studying university students at a period in the 70s and, and before when you were allowed to to infect them with influenza. He would literally infect university student volunteers with influenza and see which ones caught it and which ones got the most sick. And he found these strong correlations with psychological stress and social isolation. And since his time, since his day, I'm not suggesting we should go back to the days where you're allowed to infect students with, with bugs and things, 
But since those studies were, were, were done, um, we have learned a lot about stress and is especially in the area of how stress affects elderly people. The metabolism of elderly people, how it is dramatically affected by levels of stress and also social isolation. So we know now that the stress is 10 times greater in an elderly person than in a young university student. For the same stressors, the uh, physiological response to it is much greater, is much more negative, much more harmful for the elderly person. Okay, so you'll notice that as you get old, you you tend to want to really avoid stress way more than before. <laughs> and there's a very real reason for that. Okay, um, so um, taking people, shipping a sick person, an elderly sick person from the hospital because you want to make room, you want to free their bed and locking them into a new environment, into a home and isolating them is the worst thing you can do in terms of stress and social isolation and not letting anyone see them. So that would have played a big role in killing elderly people in that way. Um, and it's also the opposite of what's recommended, what was recommended scientifically. I mean, there have been influenza epidemics in care homes for a long time, and they've been studied in the scientific literature, and we already know what to do and what not to do. And so they did the opposite, okay? And I could go into that. We, we I, In my papers, I've reviewed that scientific literature. So the, it was really a, a criminal act, what they did at the very start. And then when you try to understand what happened later, well, I just I just explained a lot of it. So in summary, in summary, then you have a large pool of very vulnerable people who live in a hot climate, who are obese and have and are poor. They have all these coping mechanisms such that they get by. Usually you remove all these coping mechanisms. They're stressed out. They're isolated. They're more susceptible to getting bacterial infection, among other things co-infected with all the usual viral respiratory diseases that are always around. You don't even have to need COVID or anything. And uh, they're very sick. And, and, and the majority of them, I would say, have bacterial pneumonia and they're not treated with antibiotics and they die. That's the summer peak. And it, that's why it correlates that way. Okay. Um, so um, this ties into ivermectin. Ivermectin. No, no, seriously. I've, a lot of MDs are convinced that ivermectin saves lives and saved lives of their patients. I would suggest to them that maybe their patients were co-infected with bacterial infections because ivermectin has been shown scientifically in a peer-reviewed article to be extremely effective at combating bacterial infections of the lungs, of the lungs specifically. Mm. So... I think a lot of these MDs have been treating bacterial infections in an era when they're told they can't prescribe antibiotics and they shouldn't, they're unethical if they're doing that, and they're prescribing this wonder drug, and they're helping people resolve that very serious health problem if they're co-infected with a bacterial infection and saving their lives. I think, I think that's why, that's, that would be my guess as to why ivermectin works so well, uh, is through, through the root of uh, uh, these bacterial infections. So in a nutshell, that's what we discovered. And, but it gets, it gets even more interesting than that, Jeremy. So, I mean, I've read your paper, but I'm going to pretend like I haven't. And I'm going to say, okay, Absolutely. so, so your conclusion is that there is no viral pandemic in the data that you've analyzed. 
The behavior of all-cause mortality as a function of time and by jurisdiction is inconsistent with what we've always attributed to uh, the viral respiratory diseases that happen seasonally. It's completely inconsistent with that. It does not fit. The measures that were imposed on people at the population level is what killed people. The damage comes from what two things, what the governments did in terms of removing everything you normally have access to mm. and, and isolating you by lockdowns and everything. And the second thing is what the medical profession did. Stop, you know, they stopped uh, prescribing antibiotics at a time when it was absolutely the, the medically required thing. And we've got data uh, uh, about antibiotics in France as well, where we see exactly the same thing. Uh, so, um, medically, the medical profession did not respond correctly to this. They were told to put on their COVID glasses and everybody obediently put them on and that's all they could see. And they did not look at, uh, co-infections in order to treat them properly. They were not exchanging information like they normally would through the usual busy network that they represent to say, Hey, a lot of my... A lot of my patients also have pneumonia. What do we do about this? You know, uh, no, they were not. I mean, th th this is huge numbers of, of pneumonias that there is no discussion about. It, it's not even in the media that there was a mega epidemic of, of pneumonia in the United States. It's not even, it doesn't, it's not on the radar. It's incredible. So I conclude that uh, one of the important killer responses was the unprofessional behavior of the medical profession and that includes hospital administrations and the hospitals and the, and the supervisors of these of these hospitals and everything just to be fair though just to be fair yeah. you don't want to paint all medical professionals with the same brush and suggest that absolutely. they absolutely every single person that has a medical degree has behaved in exactly the same way i'm just kidding i'm just kidding <laughs> no 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 <laughs> obviously there are uh, dedicated uh, medical doctors who kill themselves trying to help people and mm. alert people to the lies and the mm. machinations that were happening in in the in the wards in the hospitals and what was happening with their patients they just went out you know beyond beyond the call mm. of duty and put their own careers at risk and put their reputations at risk and they were and they were harassed in the media and so on of course and thank God for those for those people because that's how we know how bad it got. For example, yeah. the MDs that whist that were whistleblowing on the on the uh, ventilators, mechanical ventilators, uh, you know, the worst possible thing you could do that was shown in a scientific article to have killed many many patients. You had a much greater chance of dying if they put one of those inside you uh, than if they left you alone. <laughs> you know, and the, and 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 they were treating you for COVID. So at the same time, you you had bacterial infection. And this would aggravate it, and they wouldn't treat it with antibiotics. So, uh, and but some MDs were whistleblowers in that regard, and uh, you know we, we we won't forget them. Um, so yeah, they're not. They, there were a lot of heroes, mm. but mostly there was a profession that was callous and cowardly. Denis, um, a, a lot of the a lot of the talking points are obviously about COVID also, but. I have to ask you, how do they determine what is COVID? Because I, I still, we're not almost two years later, and I still, I still don't know what the diagnosis is. Well, you know, 
the beauty of our work is that we never have to address that question. I can say, I'm not going to deal with the people who want to argue about what COVID is. I'm going to look at all-cause mortality. And I'm going to tell you what the historic trends are, what's different now, and what is the most likely explanation to explain these huge differences. These are not subtle points. I don't have to argue with you about how the genetic code was developed and whether those methods are reliable and whether we really isolated the virus and all that kind of stuff. I don't need to deal with it. All I, I just have to look at the historic data. I've got robust data and I can tell you this is not, their narrative does not apply here. It absolutely does not apply whatsoever. So I can, I can be firm about that. So I, I can just avoid those questions. I mean, I have my opinions about it. I have my opinions about it. I've read a lot of papers about it. I talked to a lot of scientists about it, but I would, you know, uh, from my expertise, I would prefer to avoid the whole thing, you know, because you don't need it. You don't need it. Look, in my book, there are always, there's never one respiratory virus that's active in a, in a given season. There's always dozens and dozens. Every time that they try to identify the, the viral species or varieties, if you like, in, that are inf co-infecting a person, they always find three, four, five, six acting simultaneously. There's a whole ecology of microbes and viruses that, that, that are infecting your respiratory tract all the time. And so what's much more important is what makes you susceptible to these major infections that are life-threatening. That's the important question, not where did it come from? What, what mutation are we dealing with this time around? Or what mutations are we dealing with this time around? All those questions are kind of secondary to why do people get sick and, and die? And what we find, if you look at the higher level, the, the coarse grain analysis is that the, you don't need to know the genetic code of, and you don't need to presume that there's one virus that's more virulent than others, you know? So our, our conclusion is, when we look at the, the data, the hard data, is that there was not a specially virulent pathogen this winter or any winter or in the COVID period. There is no evidence for that. I can, I can go to Canada and look at all-cause mortality for Canada, which is a large country, in direct contact with the United States. And in Canada, the all-cause mortality per year has not budged. If you look at cycle years 2020 and 2021, which is summer to summer integrated, it's exactly the same. It's on the historic trend as it has been for more than a decade. Exactly the same. There, there is no evidence of anything that you could call a pandemic in terms of death right. in Canada. Now you have to ask yourself, all right, you can't deny that. That's, that's what happened in Canada. We have the data. Now in the US, there was huge excess deaths. So does that mean that there was this incredibly virulent pathogen in the United States that didn't cross the border? A 5,000 kilometer border between the two greatest yeah. economic trading partners makes, in the world? Yeah, that per makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. It just <laughs> decided that, no, it was not going to cross the border, right? It, it doesn't want the hassle. So, um, no, no, that's that's impossible. So that's where I say this: the, the narrative breaks down. You see, you can't have you can't have this virulent new pathogen in the United States and absolutely no trace of it in terms of mortality in Canada. You know, in Canada, it's interesting because you had that that large peak of excess mortality right after they announced the pandemic. So that's an anomaly that you see in Quebec, especially that province was really nasty in how it treated its elderly people. 
And but after the elderly people, their deaths are less than the historic trend immediately following. Sure. So in other words, they accelerated their deaths by the measures that they applied. And then um, in the following months, there were no fragile elderly people, not as many to die. You see, and that's kind of a demonstration of what we've been trying to say the whole time. So we have data that shows that for Canada. Does uh, does your yeah. um, analysis export internationally? I mean, let's look at Africa uh, well, or, or uh, Europe to, to a large degree because uh, it it relies on countries where you have two things: seasonality of deaths, so mid latitude countries, and you have to have good enough data to you have to have, be recording the data. You have to be actually have good data about mortality and be making it public. As long as I've got that, I can apply the same analysis. And we've looked at a whole bunch of European countries. And the ones that come close to showing phenomena like the United States with really a lot of excess deaths are tend to be Eastern European countries as opposed to Western European countries. Again, it's jurisdictional. And I think it relates to a more fragile, susceptible po pools of population that are mistreated, okay, in, in that, 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 that are going to be subjected to these conditions more in uh, former Eastern Bloc countries. That would be my guess at the moment. Right. We're, we're, and we're, yeah. My data allows one to, ver with great certainty, answer the, that question. And the answer is we would not have noticed. There would not have been, if, if the World Health Organization had not made that announcement and suggested the measures uh, and there wasn't an immediate response to, in certain jurisdictions, we would have avoided those deaths. And then we would have avoided the excess mortality for the following two seasons uh, if there was nothing special going on. So it's definitely the measures, medical and governmental, that killed people. I have no doubt about that. That that's the biggest conclusion from analyzing this data that you can have. Um, yeah. Well, obviously, then the segue and the elephant in the room is: Do these quote unquote vaccines add to all-cause mortality in your data? Okay. Now, most of our data was collected before the vaccine campaign started in the United States because it only started this summer, right? This this last summer. So most of that very first COVID peak, the summer 2020 that I was telling you about that we analyzed and the following winter massive peak in the United States, again, very different from state to state, but overall for the whole United States, it's huge, huge, unprecedented. All of that happened before the vaccination program started. Okay, so as the seasonal mortality was dropping, that's when they were starting the vaccination program, the mass vaccination program. So I can only tell for what followed after the vaccination program. And we now have good data for that. And I can tell you that we have conclusive evidence that the vaccines are massively killing people. I, we're writing, that's the paper that we're writing this this moment that's the that's the next paper that we hope to put out in the in the coming weeks i'm giving you the scoop here uh we have got um incredible data that shows without a doubt in our minds little doubt i mean 
you know, we, we only ask to be disproved, but I think we've got really strong evidence that the vaccination program has is killing people, not by the usual methods which are reported in VARs, but by a new mechanism that we've identified, okay? So what we find is that in addition to all the deaths that are reported in VARs, which are not a lot of deaths on the scale of the nation, and you cannot see that amount of deaths in the all-cause mortality, but what you can see, the only time you would you'd be able to see that that number of deaths in all-cause mortality is if it was bunched in time and you saw a peak, you know, but generally it's very hard to see. So the deaths that were occurring during the vaccination program, you can't distinguish them from the deaths that were due to the measures that were being applied. Okay. You just can't. But after the vaccination program was mostly accomplished, there was another peak in this, in the late summer of 2021 that started up and it is huge compared to the summer 2020 peak, which is already massive and unprecedented. And that peak has characteristics that suggest to me that it probably is the vaccine campaign that did this. And the characteristics are as follows. For the first time in recorded epidemiology, in, in data as we see it, and for the first time also in, um, in the COVID period, it's now young people that are, that are dying in that COVID, in that peak in the summer of 2021. So I can do all-cause mortality by age group, and I can show that young adults were not dying before, and now they're a big contributor to this all-cause mortality. Now, there is no way that a virus decided to start killing young people. There is no way that one of these mutations would, would make a virus from something that we know from the beginning is only killing elderly people to something that now can go after young people. And so what we believe, and so what we, so what we see in this peak, I'm going to summarize the paper that we're now writing. Uh, what we see in this peak is that it's the same, it's the deaths are from the same pools of, pop, of people. So we're talking about the, again, the poor obese people who live in hot climate states are the ones being killed and they're being killed again by pneumonia. Pneumonia is right there. And now it's the young people. And the only difference is now they're vaccinated. They weren't before. Okay. So what we, the way we understand that, the way we understand that is vaccine damage. So we, we believe that the vaccine has damaged the blood vessels in the lungs and made, made it more difficult to defend against pneumonia, okay? So your usual protections that would heal you are not as efficient because of the vaccine damage in the, in the blood vessels in the lungs and other organs. And so you are uh, damaged, you're already highly susceptible, you're in that population group that's going to get pneumonia because of the stress of everything that's happening and your vaccine damage. So now, because of that vaccine damage is occurring in young people, uh, that gives them the extra kind of the extra harm that would push them to death. And so now we're seeing young the, the young populations dying as a result. It's now obviously not a vaccine then. Huh? Then it's not a Sorry? vaccine. 
Oh, well, that's another, that's a semantic, that's another question. It, it's, in my, it's an injection, okay? Mm. They're, in, they're injecting something that um, the, mechanistically uh, uh, the spike protein is being produced. The spike protein attaches itself to cell walls. It's, it circulates in the blood. There's scientific articles that show that now. Uh, and it attaches itself to uh, uh, cells on, on, on the surfaces of these blood vessels, and then they are attacked by your T cells, by your immune system, and killed because they're recognized as something that's potentially producing uh, more of this virus. You know, that's how the T cell sees it. So they, so you have huge damage of blood vessels. That, that's why young, young athletes are getting heart attacks. Yes. Okay. They're falling um, on the field. Why? Well, the people who are most training that muscle, the heart, and who most depend and who most push the limit of their cardiovascular fitness are the ones who are going to be most damaged by this kind of mechanism through the vaccine because all the blood is delivered there. That's where there's more blood vessels than there would be in other people. And you're also uh, making a, a, a supreme physical effort on the field with this heart whose blood vessels the vascular system of the heart has been damaged by the vaccine and you have heart problems on the field that's in my view that's my opinion about why these athletes are suffering these conditions um the the the, the people who are most fit and who are most using their fitness professionally pushing their limits are the ones that are going to be more most susceptible to suffering from heart damage i would say you know, you're so, used to pushing yourself at a certain level, but you don't know it. But now your heart is damaged in, in the vacu The vascular system of your heart has been damaged by the vaccine. But you push yourself like you're used to pushing yourself and you collapse. And that's how I understand these athletes uh, collapsing. And by extension, having the booster shots just amplifies everything. Yes, uh, there's there's a scientific article that suggests that every time you get either the second dose or boosters, the risk from harm is uh, more than just the same risk again, okay? It's amplified because you're training your immune system more and more to recognize that spike protein. And so more and more it's gearing, it's gearing up to attack cells that it recognizes as producing the spike protein. So, so therefore, each time you produce spike protein that goes and attaches itself to these cell walls, bang, the T cells get in there and they're better at it and they're more trained to do it the more boosters you've had. So that is what Doctors for COVID Ethics, a group of scientists uh, that I'm a member of, that's what they are arguing and saying publicly. They have a fantastic website uh, that everyone should look at for the most recent reports and warnings about what's going to happen and what is happening. And they, most of their warnings have occurred before it happens. So they, they actually predicted a lot of this uh, based on the science and the mechanisms that they, that they study. So that's what I think is happening. And that's why I think for the first time in all-cause mortality, we have these young populations that are being attacked preferentially to the degree that you can see it in all-cause mortality. So it's huge numbers of, of deaths and uh, immediately following a massive vaccination campaign in the United States. So don't let these, these spin doctors tell you that all of a sudden 
the uh, COVID uh, virus is able to kill young people where it wasn't before. Uh, don't let them tell you that. That's that's garbage. Denny, in front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? Um, it's just going to get worse. They can't. They they have the project. You know, one of the best uh, talks that I saw was the talk by um, Robert Robert Kennedy Jr. He gave a talk in Milan, and the transcript is on their website. And it is a brilliant talk that explains that the um, CIA is involved every step of the way and that the deep state is managing this operation and uh, that that's what it's really about. And uh, it's about the geoeconomic war that I was telling you about and the response to the growth of China and the development of China and Russia is this war. And part of the plan is to control and to know everything about the domestic population, which is potentially a threat through the mechanism of so-called of democracy, right? Which is a great concern to them. So they want to know where everyone is and what we're doing. They want complete surveillance. Therefore, you have these mobility passports where you have to tell them everywhere you're at all the time and why you're there, you know, whether you're going to the restaurant, buying something online or whatever, it's, it's coming to that point. So they want to know where you spend every dime, where you are at each moment, uh, uh, and so on, supposedly for contact tracing, but these the contact tracing has been disproved as a ridiculous scientific concept if you want to control an actual viral respiratory disease. So anyway, that's what they want. They've decided to put it in place. They're going to shove it down our throats as long as people believe it. And in countries where the majority of people uh, believe that they're in danger of this new viral pathogen, they're going to do it. You know, people are going to accept it. Yeah, so I, I think they want that complete uh, surveillance of the population. They mm. want to crush anyone who's an independent thinker and who's uh, willing to res- try to resist them. They're going to take away your 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 livelihood. Mm. They're going to prevent mm. you from buying food. We're, we're, one of the provinces in Canada is barring people from going to the supermarket if they're not vaccinated. It's it, that's that's where we're at. And um, people actually think that it's about their health. Yep. A lot of people do. Yeah. A majority, I would say, are, are, sure. are terrified. You know, you have to understand that in Canada, the CBC, the, the federally funded propaganda instrument, is 24-7 propaganda that we're in the middle of this pandemic that's incredibly dangerous. And there's variants, you know, popping up everywhere and we're all going to die. And, uh, uh, you know, these great frontline workers are going to do everything they can to save us. But your duty is to go and get vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's it's twenty four seven propaganda. So if you're sitting at home watching the news and trying to trying to be a good citizen, uh, you're going to totally buy into this. Yeah. Where can people find more about what you have to say? Well, I recently started and 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 built and uh, w- with some competent help a wonderful website. So it's Denis Rancourt or Dennis Rancourt, but Denis really with one N, uh, rancourt.ca. So Denis Rancourt, one word, .ca is my website. It has a whole section on COVID with all my scientific articles and reports about COVID. There's about 20 of them there. 
It's got all my interviews, uh, video interviews. There's mm -hmm. a section on video and so on, right? You can learn about what I've done scientifically. There's a CV there and all my areas of research are there. I'm including, pretending. Sorry, go on. Including my climate denialism and my, and my critique of the medical profession and all that stuff. It's all there. I'm pretending like I haven't been to your website, but I've actually spent a lot of time on it and it is very slick. Oh, cool. I'm glad you like it. Um, the moment the moment somebody accuses you of being a climate denier, then I'm interested because that means you're probably correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. That, so you you agree with me that there's something there. Hundred um, percent. the the uh, moment The moment you, know, you called a denier for anything is yeah. is the moment I'm interested in listening. Oh, absolutely. I'm with you. Uh, I once had a long conversation with someone in a restaurant before COVID who was uh, someone who believed very firmly that the earth is flat. And I wanted to spend time with him. I wanted to uh, discuss it with him. I wanted to know all the reasons why he believed that and what his logic was and everything, you know? Uh, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. It is fascinating. And, yes. and let me just tell you, um, a few months ago, I had um, a gent who um, was the head behavioral psychologist at uh, Cambridge Analytica, the organization that was supposedly involved in getting Trump into the White House. Uh, an amazing conversation. And he, <laughs> he said to me that the last two years have pulled the rug from underneath his feet in the sense that now he questions everything. And he says he found uh -huh. himself, yes. he says he found himself on the internet questioning, how does he know the earth is actually round? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It'll take you almost to that edge. <laughs> no um, pun intended. No pun intended. But, um, you know, let me tell you about the climate, okay? Not many people know this about me because, you know, people have learned about me mostly because of COVID. I was the first to write a very popular critical review of masks. I was the first to point out that the first peak in all-cause mortality was jurisdictional and could not possibly be a virus, uh, and so on. So I've been known for that, but um, I'm, all, I'm also known for a lot of things in science, and I've given a lot of plenary lectures at, at various areas of science. But on the climate side, this is interesting. I wrote a paper in 2011 in which I did a physics calculation, a, a, a radiation, radiation balance calculation to show from first principles that even if you doubled the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, you would have a very small effect on, on the mean global temperature at the surface, okay? That it would be essentially negligible. And, 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 but I did it from first principles. I wanted to convince myself, and I did it rigorously and from first principles. I interacted with some top climatologists at the time when I did that. They critiqued my work. Uh, at one point, uh, one guy found a mistake. I corrected it. I wrote this paper. Okay. Well, just recently, a Harvard professor who teaches astronomy contacted me, said he wanted to chat because he loves my work on COVID and so on. Then he tells me, that paper from 2011, I'm using it in my courses because I teach planetary science. We study planets, and that's the paper I'm using now to teach uh, the physics of what happens at the surface of the planet to my students. And they go through your paper and they look at it in detail. Now, that paper has never been published uh, in a journal. It's not peer-reviewed in the traditional sense, although it's been critiqued by leaders in the field. Um, 
but and I wouldn't even try to get it published in a journal because it's written in a way that I'd have to rewrite it completely. I'd have to, you know, take away everything that would give them a hiccup and, and that they would dislike and word it differently. And I don't want to do that. So there it is. There it is. So that's something I did. And I've written a lot about climate, the climate thing. Yeah. Well, then in that case, you're going to have to uh, come and chat to me about that in the new year because I'm very interested in that. And Patrick Moore, uh, who he was also on my show. I love and, that guy. Yeah, and I he was on my guy. show, and he yeah. argues the same thing about CO2. We need more of it as, as his primary Yeah, yeah, argument. yeah, 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 for sure. So, Denis Rancourt, it's been a pleasure having you in the trenches here with me. It's been great being here with you. In the, yeah, it's a war. As you, 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 The title of your podcast is wonderful. Exactly right. Thank you so much. Don't go anywhere. My name is Jim, this is Jim Wolfe, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.